another episode of Money You Should Ask. I'm your host, Bob Wheeler, and in this episode, we're going to explore, question, examine, converse, dig deep, expose, laugh, and cry about the money beliefs, money blocks, and life challenges of our next guest. Turn up the volume, listen, learn, and laugh. Many of us get financially stuck and can't seem to get unstuck. By taking baby steps and getting support, I was able to establish new financial habits. Fresh Start 2021 is a 28-day financial reset. I invite you to join us to clear out old money beliefs that are holding you back and create a new successful money mindset. Challenge your money worries and let's get financially fit in February. We have created daily activities to expand your mind and your monetary skills with easy, engaging tips and techniques. Dare to dream. Build a financial frame of mind and grow your money with care. Join us for the month of February on your favorite social media platform. Our next guest, Eric Brotman, is a CFP and a a CEO of BFG Financial Advisors with over 25 years of experience as a trusted advisor. He believes financial literacy is the key to well-being and is the author of multiple books on personal finance, including his latest book, Don't Retire, Graduate. And he's the host of the podcast, Don't Retire, Graduate. Eric's approach and actionable financial advice has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes.com, Yahoo Finance, the Baltimore Sun, and multiple other venues of information. Eric, it's great to have you. Great to be here, Bob. Thank you. All right. So I know that uh, we talked ahead of time and you're on the East Coast and you're maybe going to get some snow. Um, Is that where you grew up? Did you grow up in the East Coast? Yeah, I'm I'm a Baltimore native. Um, we're affectionately referred to as Baltimoreans by the locals. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, went to school in Philadelphia and then came back to Maryland. And this is, this has been home for almost five decades. Wow. And how far are you from your childhood home? Uh, 15 minutes by car. Wow. So, uh, not too far. No, I have far. a very small radius. There you go. That's, <laughs> it's a comfort level. It's a comfort level. Yeah. And um, when you were growing up in Baltimore uh, as a kid, do you have any early money memories, like five or six, that like either had a bad experience or one of those kinds of things? You know, I I, I definitely grew up in in a household where money was um, sometimes a source of consternation. It was certainly not discussed with me in any um, mature way, but. You know, like lots of couples, my folks were were struggling at times with money, and it wasn't easy. And I definitely heard some of that uh, growing up. Um, I wouldn't say that there was any particular incident or moment for me, but I, I definitely realized that um, that they they worked darn hard to make sure that my brother and I never never really went without. And we we did we did okay. It was a middle class household. We did fine, um, but it was it, it certainly wasn't the mindset wasn't one of abundance. That's for sure. Right. Did you get an allowance? Um, I did not until I was a teenager. And at that point, um, it was less of an allowance and more of a, we'd rather pay you than someone else to mow the lawn. Um, So, uh, you know, whether I was mowing the lawn or shoveling the driveway, you mentioned the snow. um, I I think it was more along the lines of learning a little bit of work ethic. So Mm -hmm. I started doing that at 12. But by 14, I was, I had moved up to the big time. I was flipping burgers uh, and doing fast food by 14. Oh, see, that's awesome. I, uh, yeah, I worked at Burger King. So uh, did I. There you go. That's where all, that's where all the great podcast hosts start. That's exactly right. Cause you get to yeah. have it your way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, did you ever work drinks? You know, uh, no. I uh, I started. Uh, I wanted to make sure that I was uh, indispensable, so I started uh, for two dollars and eighty five cents an hour cleaning bathrooms, okay. among other things. All right. Then I eventually, they eventually realized that my strongest and best use was not trying to deep fry a fish sandwich, but was in fact to work the catch register because I could count. Oh, there you go. These were big things at the time. So, you know, the less computers, more actual counting of change. Yes. Now they have pictures on the cash registers at fast food <laughs> restaurants. So you don't even have to know the number. You just know it's a Big Mac. <laughs> oh, yes. Please, please swipe. Please don't give me cash. Yes. I, I, exactly. I know. No, it, it's funny. My, my business partner, I actually, um, we merged firms a couple of years ago and her first job was at Burger King. And apparently that is like... Uh, it, I, I definitely learned lessons there. I spent two years there. Um, I, you know, I worked 20 hours a week and made 60 bucks a week, which thankfully I didn't have bills. So that yeah. was fine. But, um, you know, the reality was it taught me responsibility and I, I, I don't regret it at all. I, I regret the polyester uniforms and I'm glad there are no photos. Uh, the polyester uniforms that smelled like burgers when you went home and, and grease. If you're lucky. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I got demoted from the drinks because... Unlike at the pharmacy when you get a soda and you put the milkshake thing up and it stays, that doesn't happen at Burger King. You have to hold it. So when I put it up and I let go, I covered the entire kitchen with uh, strawberry and uh, they put me back on burgers. <laughs> Excellent. Well, <laughs> listen, from humble beginnings, look at you now. Look at like I can make a shake now. There you go. Life is good. So now you have kids. Do your kids uh, get an allowance? Did they get an allowance? Yeah, I, my my daughter is eleven, and we started allowance with her. Actually, she requested it, and we started Uh-oh. that. She was about nine years old, and she said, "I'd really like to have an allowance." And you know, we talked about it a little bit, and we actually decided that it was important to tie allowance into some age appropriate jobs around the house, simple yeah. stuff, putting away her laundry, clearing the table after dinner, those kinds of things. Okay. Um, and then I had her go out to a craft store and buy three jars and I had her label those jars and it was fun and long-term and charity. Great. And so we, we gave her an allowance. It was $5 a week. It was $1 bills. Every week she had to put at least $1 into long-term and at least $1 into charity. And the other three, she could do whatever she wanted with. And what we found over time was, first of all, there were weeks where she didn't need the fund money and she would do more into long-term or, or, or into charity. And then at the end of that first year, you know, I took her to the bank. We opened an account. I matched her contributions. So she learned about that for long-term. Um, and she chose charities that she wanted to support. And we sent, we sent that off. So she learned philanthropy in a, in a very age-appropriate way. Um, and, and I would say she made some really decent decisions. I, she hasn't been able to spend a whole lot of fun money lately because we don't go anywhere currently. Yeah. <laughs> but but that will change and hopefully we'll be back at Disney World someday and, and she'll be able to enjoy the fruits of that labor as well. And when, so I love that you do the jars. I talk about this all the time about having clear piggy banks or clear jars so we can see the money that we're saving or feel the money going out of the jar as we spend it. Um what did you notice also like about her spending? Did she, uh, did she come and ask for more raises? Did she like, how did Never. she negotiate? Um, she really didn't. I, I think we came up with something and, and we lived with it. I, and, and, you know, it's been now two years. Um, and you know, the only thing she negotiated was for different duties around the house. 
Okay. So, you know, she was less concerned about how much money it was because, frankly, that's all the money in the world when you're 10 and you don't have any financial needs, of course. Yeah. Um, but wanting to do different things around the house. And, and now we are tying her allowance to extra educational pursuits with Khan Academy. Where if she's going to, so so if she's completing extra coursework and doing some extra things that are academic, because that's really where I want her. I don't really want her clearing the table if we could have her learning something. Right. Um, and so um, we, we've started to tie it to that. And uh, we figure this summer, that'll be a way to keep her engaged academically over the summer because it'll put a few a, a few nickels in her pocket. And, and, you know, if we're able to go to the beach like a normal summer, she'll enjoy that. Yeah. That's awesome. Now, let me, so going back to your childhood, when you were seven, eight years old, were you sitting around saying, I can't wait to be a financial advisor, book writer, and podcast host? Uh, of course. Okay. No, uh, I, like everybody else, when I was asked what I wanted to be when I grow up, I was going to play for the Baltimore Colts. Okay. Now, um, that creates interesting issues today. A, I was small, but I made up for it by being slow. Um, B, the Colts don't exist anymore, um, at least not in Baltimore and haven't right. since I was a teenager. So th- those dreams went out the window. Um, it's funny. I love asking people, grown people now, what they want to be when they grow up. Yeah. Because people get puzzled because you haven't been asked that in 40 years. Right. Um, but the reality is I think if we're not growing and we're not evolving, we're making a mistake. So no, I was going to play for the Baltimore Colts. Um, that didn't pan out. So plan B was this. And then I went to school and I was an English major. I studied English and psychology. I was planning to go to law school. Ah. And I went to, um, I went to work at a brokerage firm in the legal department and I fell in love with the financial business. Ah. And so it, this was an accident. Well, there you go. There are no accidents. <laughs> well, it, it was certainly, if it was preordained, I didn't know about you it. You didn't How's know that? about it. And yeah. let me ask you this. So uh, I was supposed to be a lawyer. Uh, I, all my college courses were pre-law, constitution law, law and legal research. And then I met a bunch of lawyers <laughs> and I thought, I'm really good at accounting. <laughs> yeah. no, lawyers are not happy people. They're not and, happy and, and people. That's, a, that's an unfair blanket statement because there are certainly some of them who are, but particularly those who sell time. Yeah. To me, that is a tragic existence because even though you can make a bunch of money, the opportunity cost every time you decide to take an hour for yourself feels so expensive that you don't do it and you wind up being a slave to your own clock. Yeah. And to me, it is that is a tragic existence despite how much money you can earn. You're not happy. That's terrible. That's not abundant at all. No, and I wonder, and and I'm I'm going to ask you this because you are on track to be a lawyer, I know for myself, I was socialized, and I think a lot of lawyers might have this mindset. I was socialized to believe that I am my accomplishments. So I got to win. I got to get the best grade. I got to, like, whatever it is, at all costs, I've got to get the most marks on my resume. Um, And I wonder if that was true for you at a younger age. You know, it's not pressure I ever received from my folks Mm -hmm. because, quite frankly, that just wasn't – I was not brought up in a way that was um, excel, excel, excel. Um, In fact, if anything, it was more laissez-faire. I would say that the pressure that I put on uh, or that I felt was Uh self-imposed and I really wanted – I couldn't wait to get a job. And to be uh, independent and start growing wealth. And that meant flipping burgers at 14, but it also meant graduating college in three and a half years and right. hitting the workforce. Like I was anxious to produce. I was anxious to, to, um, to learn and to earn. 
And, um, I, you know, I was not a, a stellar student. I was a, a, a bright, a bright young guy, but I didn't work that hard in school. I worked much harder at people and at relationships. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, I think that served me a hell of a lot more than a better GPA would have. Yeah, for sure. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, uh, whatever you do, I think it's all about relationships. Yeah, nobody asks what your SAT scores were anymore, do they? I mean, I hope not. No, I um, just have to show people because they won't ask. <laughs> yeah, no. please look, look, I studied hard. Look, no, I did. <laughs> it just doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Um, and and what, what really matters more is, um, is what you get out of those experiences and learning that you need to put something into them, whether they're yeah. extracurricular or voluntary, whether they're professional. Um, it, to me, and, and no one put that kind of pressure on myself. I mean, I, I really... I put a lot of pressure on myself even to this day, but I've learned getting older. Um, I, I have learned how to create what I like to call work-life integration. Yeah. Because I don't think work-life balance exists. I think anyone who says it exists is, is fooling themselves because it's not an either-or game. It's how do you work um, and, you, and how do you live and how do they integrate together so that you have a, a, a terrific both rather than I'm really doing all of this one day and all of that another day. I think it's okay to integrate the two, and and that's been that's been really good for me. And I, I now have a rhythm to my year. Yeah, you know, I, I take summers off now. I mean, that that's not something most people can do, right? But, you know, it started with I spent nine years. I started this company in '03. I went nine years without a week off. Yeah, and just worked it and worked it and worked it. And now, you know, we have 21 people, and now it's better for me, and I'm better for our clients and our and our. Um, strategic alliances and all the people we do business with, if I'm getting those breaks and those um, sabbaticals, for lack of a better term, because I come back geared up and excited and enthusiastic and I never get bored. No, I think that's awesome. And I I think what's interesting, and I'm thinking of myself as well, um, I could do it, but mentally I panic. It's it's more about my self-imposed, I've got to work, I've got to work, or there's, I could do this thing, and I could do one more podcast, and I could do this other workshop. And um, so it's hard for me because I enjoy what I do, so it doesn't feel like I'm working. Um, yeah. But other people would say, could you please slow down and actually <laughs> talk to people around you? <laughs> well, it, you know, I love what I do too, and, and, it, and it is easy to be um, sucked into that. Um, clearly, we were both born to be lawyers. We're just glad we didn't do it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, but, but, but there's there's something special about knowing that you're working because you love it instead yep. of working because you got a mortgage to pay or you got something that if you don't do X, yeah. you're in trouble. Yeah. And you know, young people aren't in a position to have that yet. But if you get to a certain point in your career where you are, if if not financially independent, at least financially secure. Yeah such that you can start making those choices, you know, I'm happy to be at the beach in the summer and I'm happy to work a little from there. I'll do a podcast or an interview or, or, or have a client call if I need to. But most of my day is going to be spent with family or, or, or enjoying myself or learning something new or reading something that means something to me. And I, it, it, it no longer feels like something that I got to put 12 hours a day in or I'm cheating myself. Right. There are days I do, but there are also days I don't. Right. No, that's awesome. That's awesome. I like the distinction between balance and integration because I think that is true. It's hard to just turn it off, move over to the next and pretend the other doesn't exist. Cause I'm like, wait, did I finish that tax return? <laughs> it's still well, in my head. 
And COVID taught us a few things about that too, because now I can do a client meeting and laundry at the same time. Well, that was never, that was never possible. <laughs> or advise them in your underwear. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I, above the waist, That's I am right. all business and below the waist, it's none of your business. <laughs> so there's that. There's that. Yeah. That's perfect. So I know you said that you had a little bit of, um, uh, in college, you studied psychology. Yep. And, um, when I deal with a lot of financial advisors, I, I give talks and, and different things. And I'm always amazed at a lot of advisors who think that numbers are just very black and white. Give me a half a million dollars. I'll invest it, make some money, and just listen to what I say. And they don't factor in always the emotional component, which is something I'm big about. And I'm wondering um, your experience about that and, and do emotions and does psychology come into play in the way you interact with your clients? One hundred percent in every in every engagement in every relationship, uh, we're we're human beings. We're emotional creatures. Um, all of us feel some of those various pressures. And managing your own finances is a lot like editing your own manuscript. It's very tough to do because your brain sees what you what it thinks you wrote. Right. And so you, you know, my wife and I have a financial advisor, and we sit down with her. And, and, and we go through this and I put on my husband and father hat and take off my this is what I do for a living hat so that I can actually be fully present and on the same side of the table, literally and figuratively, so we can make decisions together because this isn't all about numbers. Performance means so much less than behavior. Yeah. And uh, if we, learning through the tech bubble and Y2K and 9-11 and the Great Recession and on and on and on and now into our pandemic, whatever the whatever the decades disaster du jour is, um, there are certain lessons that you can learn that require objectivity and that require being dispassionate. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly hard to do that with your own account, with your yeah. own affairs. We all have blind spots. Yeah. Um, and so it's, uh, to me, we spend so much less time talking about numbers and so much more time talking about what's important. You know, yes, it's important to save for college if that's something that's a priority for you. But the why is so much more important than the how or where. And ultimately, if you're spending any time, Bob, thinking about which growth fund to own, you're wasting your time. Right. They own the same stuff. Yeah. No, that's, you know, it's so interesting because uh, sometimes my staff would say, you're spending too much time with the clients. You're getting, you're not getting the numbers and moving it on. You got to move it forward. Uh, but in those conversations, I find out if they've gotten married or divorced or have a kid. Uh, I, you know, I hear certain, oh, I'm driving a Tesla. Wait a minute, tax credit. And, yeah. right. And so I'm listening mm -hmm. um, for tax information, even in those casual conversations. It's a filter that you have that you've developed over time and it serves you and it serves your clients. Yeah. And for us, you know, we talk about things that are more important than money. We talk about legacy. We talk about vision. We talk about values. We talk about um, not what money is or how much of it, but what it can do. Yeah. The, the, you, you can't take it with you when you die, first and foremost, but you also want to run out of oxygen before you run out of money. So there, there's, there's ways to figure out that, that balance, Yeah, you know, making sure that you have uh, enough to leave behind to the people or organizations that are important to you mm -hmm. and that you can live not only with dignity, but with joy. I mean, this yeah. is not a dress rehearsal. We only got right. one shot around this, around this, uh, this life. And, you know, so many people 
are, for lack of a better term, miserly during their working lives, building it, building it, building it with this idea that, oh, then I'm going to take this trip. And then they're not healthy enough to go where their spouse yeah. dies or where the island they wanted to visit is no longer there or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, it, it, there has to be a balance between living today and enjoying your life and preparing for the future so you can enjoy your future self's life. Yeah. It can't be binary. It's not one or the other. Now, it's so true. And I've heard so many people say, oh, now that I've retired, I can start my life. And that's so sad. Um when somebody's now getting ready to start their life at 55 or 60 or whatever that might be. Or Can, 83. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, why is legacy so important? Because that is a, a meaningful slice of immortality. That is, the, that is where you leave behind what was most important and most dear to you. And it's not an heirloom most of the time. Yeah. Most of the time, it's it's your stories. It's your um, it, it's the things that are important to you. It's what it felt like um, when you became a parent or a spouse or a business owner. Or it's when people ask us in this country, "Who are you?" Right. The first thing we come up with is what we do for a living. Right. Who are you? I'm an accountant. I'm an astronaut. I'm an architect. No, that's what you do. Who are you? And those questions mean so much more and they mean more and more as you get older. Um, you know, we, we've got a, uh, I've got a good friend um, who runs a company, a media company that specializes in doing legacy videos for clients. Mm. Um, and, you know, I hired him to do one for each of my parents mm. because my, my daughter does not remember my father-in-law. She was four years old when he died. Wow. And when he died, we went and looked through everything, looking for photos and he always had the camera. He wasn't in these pictures. It's, you don't even think about it until it's right. too late. Right. So I wanted to make sure that there would be something that not only would she remember my parents specifically, but that she'd be able to share with her children, these were your great-grandparents in their own words, in their own living color, sitting in their living rooms. That's so much more important. Tell us about what it was like growing up on such and such street or, uh, or working in, in that factory or mine or dental office or whatever it is. Yeah. There's so much more to it. And, you know, people think immortality is, is, is slapping your name on a building. And I don't know about you, but where I went to college, every one of the buildings had a name from some wealthy donor. <laughs> and I knew what the buildings were, but I didn't know who the donors were. Right. <laughs> and it didn't matter. Right. If you're going to Smith Hall, what do you care? <laughs> hey, I'm trying to keep up with the Joneses. I want to go to the Jones building. <laughs> that's, that's the dodgy part of, of campus. But, but still, like, I don't understand. Like, leave a scholarship. Yeah. You know, if you're going to do things philanthropically, instead of slapping your name on a stadium or something, leave a scholarship that, that, and endow it so that every year, some one or more students is going to stay in high school or college or whatever it is because of the legacy you've left. And it'll be something that's, that's truly permanent. And they may not ever meet you, but you can be sure there'll be some history about you provided by the university at that point. If, and, and it doesn't have to be that. It could be medical. It could be mm-hmm. any, any organization you can think of. You know, Sally loved animals and left this this thing behind for veterinary care or whatever it is. It makes no yeah. difference what it is, whatever's meaningful to you. Yeah, I think that's so important. Um, speaking of, well, legacy makes me think, you know, you've got a wife, you've got a kid. Um, 
when you first started out, uh, when you first met your wife, did you run credit scores on each other? <laughs> did you know each other's financial mindset? Uh, was that something you learned along the way? How did you know and are you in alignment? That's, that's an awesome question, actually, and, and a difficult one. We did not run credit checks for each other, but we did, um, we did cohabitate. We did uh, share some of the bill paying and all those things. We both had jobs. Um, neither of us was, was making a fortune at the time, but we were both stable. Mm-hmm. Um, and neither has had, you know, significant debt issues, which was real important. I know a lot of people go through that and, um, and I've heard some of your prior guests talk a lot about that. So, um, but, but it, it's, it's funny, but it's also serious. You, you yeah. know, you're, you're marrying somebody's credit report and their family and, and all of those things that come with them. Um, I would say that my wife and I are in very different places now because um, she hasn't worked outside of the home now for close to 11 years, mm-hmm. um, which was her choice. And I was glad to be able to you know, make that possible financially. And I think it's been good for our daughter. And I think that doesn't work for every family, but it's yeah. worked for ours. So we have a very defined division of labor yeah. you know, of who's doing what. Mm-hmm. You know, when my kid needs immunizations to go to school, my wife's on top of that. It's not even in my wheelhouse. Right. When we need to file our quarterly tax returns, I'm on it and she's not thinking about it. Yeah. It's not that we don't communicate. It's mm-hmm. that we're, we're playing to our own strengths right now. So yeah. um, we've never, I, I actually believe we've never had an argument about money. Oh, nice. Um, never. And, and it's not to suggest that we agree on everything. We don't. Right. Um, and it's certainly not to suggest we haven't had arguments that we're humans. But when it comes to money, I think we've done a pretty decent job of communicating expectations and understandings. And, you know, we certainly will spend money very differently on, on different things than one another. I mean, she spends money on things I don't get and vice versa for sure. Yeah. But I, I think we're in a position where we pay ourselves first, which is one of the things in the, in the book, which is make sure that you put away enough dollars every month, every paycheck, every year, whatever it is to reach that financial independence milestone. And what you do with the rest of it is up to you. It doesn't have to be a budget. You know, she's not watching what she's spending at the grocery store necessarily. And I'm glad she doesn't have to. Right. No, absolutely. Um, so it made me think of a question and I, I, I don't want to put you on the spot here, but, um, I'm yes, going to maybe do. put you on the spot here. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> but that's all right. I'm that's, ready. I'm on right. said spot. So are you aware of, as you raise your daughter, uh, of any uh, previous traditional gender bias in how uh, you teach her about money or teach her about uh, jobs and things like that? Because, they're, you know, gender plays a big role. Um, it, it, it does. And I would say... Um, I would say we've done a pretty good job of trying to make that not happen. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it is where we chose to send her to school. Mm-hmm. Um, so she goes to an all-girls private school, but the school she goes to is academically maybe the most rigorous in our whole metro area. Yeah. Um, and it is also incredibly diverse. So we, we've chosen a place where um, young, young women, young girls are taught resiliency and most of them go on and have professional careers. And, um, you know, the, the, the moms in the other, the other moms in the class are neurosurgeons and corporate lawyers for the most part. Great. Um, this was, this was done by design. Mm-hmm. Um, I want her to know she can be anything she wants to be mm-hmm. and, uh, and to support that. And she's very creative and she's very bright. 
Um, and, you know, she will also not play professional sports, I think, because <laughs> genetically we have cursed her to not be able to do that. Um, but she'll have other strengths, which is great. And uh, we, I think we've been pretty careful not to, not to drive that train, yeah. but to make the world very open-ended in terms of what, what's possible. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I think it's so important. Um, what I'm hearing, even if it wasn't, you know, you said by design, so it's very intentional. And I think it's, for me, it's so important uh, to do intentional living, uh, to do intentional spending, um, because I, I, I don't know, for me, it's just a richer experience and it feels like it has purpose. I, I think you're doing it exactly the right way and and i don't know that there's a wrong way necessarily but mm-hmm. if that clicks with the with your your chemical makeup then that's a good thing yeah. um you know my my wife i think would would tell you if she was sitting here that she's glad we didn't have a son <laughs> and i and i i say that not because we wouldn't have loved him but because <laughs> she thinks i would well she thinks i would have treated him differently she mm-hmm. thinks i'd have been much tougher on him mm-hmm. Um, and it, so it's an interesting question that you asked and one I hadn't been asked before. Um, I would like to think that's not true, but I bet she would say, oh, yes, you would have. <laughs> You'd have been much more likely to say, dust it off and get over it than here, let me. And, and so we really don't coddle. Yeah. Um, you know, we want resiliency. We want, we want her to take her lumps. We, we, we don't want to prevent her from failures. Right. We would like to help her learn from failures and shortcomings that we all have, but to have a life without some, some form of, uh, of pushback or failure or disappointment, eventually you're going to come to one. Yeah. And if you haven't faced it till you're 28, it's not a good thing. It's a lot harder to face the little ones so that you can know what to do when the bigger ones come and they do come. We all have it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that actually leads to my, my next question. Uh, what was the biggest challenge, fear or roadblock that you experienced? Um, the biggest challenge, fear, or roadblock that I experienced? In your life, um, yeah. In my life? Mm-hmm. Um, it, arguably, it was, it was myself. I mean, mm-hmm. I am hands down. You know, it's cliche to say you're your own worst enemy. Yeah. But um, I was guilty at some point of small think, of not dreaming big enough, mm-hmm. of not realizing what was possible. And so um, I think I had blinders on. And, and I think some of that was from my upbringing, which was sort of plot along and just do your thing. And it wasn't until I got to college and I met some, some folks who really had much broader visions that I removed those blinders mm-hmm. and said, oh, my goodness, there's, there is there's a much bigger world than – and it's funny because I live 15 minutes from where I grew up. But there is a much bigger world <laughs> – than 20 minutes away. One. Yeah, right. I mean, you can go outside the beltway. It's good. Um, but but the, the, the reality is that the horizons and the, and the, the thought pattern, and I'm doing some things now. I, I, I feel like my life over the last 30 years resembles Forrest Gump's <laughs> in the sense that I'm meeting amazing people and I'm in these, these cool, um, uh, I'm having these, these cool experiences and I'm, I'm I'm sort of unflappable when it comes to whether it's celebrity or or whatever it is, and I've just realized that people are all just that. We're just people, and so I, I don't get starstruck. Yeah, but I also don't I I don't think I um I don't think I think small anymore. Yeah, I mean now everything is amplified, um and everything is possible, and I think that's contagious. I think that's yeah. contagious here at work. I think it's contagious at home. 
So I would say the biggest challenge I had to get over was not realizing what was possible. And, and, you know, as a kid, I never did the extracurricular stuff. Mm. You know, I never played on the little league team. I never was in the school play. Per, and I, I was in one in first grade. I was the scarecrow in the Wizard of Oz. This oh, is true. Go. That's good. I only did it because I had a crush on Dorothy at the time. Oh, there you go. Um, but <laughs> for whatever reason, that was my acting debut and also my, my, my final curtain Your call. Final curtain call. Uh, yeah, that was it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I was, I was the scarecrow. So, but, but I, I really didn't do those things growing up. And so, um, and then I got to college and I picked one or two things and went deep in them. Yeah. And they weren't necessarily a stretch for me. Right. You know, I, I was at the newspaper, which I loved, but I was selling advertising. I was meeting business owners and helping them advertise in the paper. Well, that was not a stretch for me. Um, and I joined a fraternity, which definitely was not a stretch for me. In fact, it was a natural transition from, from sitting here to sitting next to the keg. Yeah. Um, which is also oval, sort of. Another oval. <laughs> and that's how I got to be this way. No, I, I, I just, I never stretched myself, even in college. Yeah, And it wasn't until, it, and I got my first job and my first job and I sort of was plodding along and doing my thing. And I realized I wanted to be in control of my own destiny. Mm. I wanted to, for lack of a better term, I wanted to eat what I killed. Yeah. Like I wanted my income to be related to my, my effort and my achievement and not to whatever step grade I was in, or I'd been there three years or six years or 12 years. And I never wanted to work for somebody ever again. And of course, we work for 500 families and, and you know, 20, 20 employees and their families. And so it's not that we're not accountable. Right. It, it's that I never wanted to work for someone other than to represent and advocate for those people who chose me to do that for them. Yeah. And what steps did you take? Like, so you had that aha moment of... I don't want to work for somebody else. Uh, I want to be in control of my destiny, which I can totally relate to. Um, what steps did you take to then actualize that? I, I, I think some of it, some of it was, was growing pains. I mean, some of it was really, I had done some aptitude testing and I had been pointed this direction, even as a young person, that, that I had a more subjective personality and that it was going to be better for me to do my own thing. Um, but I also had a tremendous, I don't know if respect is the right word or if fear is the right word, a, an incredible fear of failure. I was driven by this idea that I, I, I didn't want to fail at something, which is one of the reasons we talked about how I'm working with my daughter, that failure is okay. Right. Getting knocked down is, is fine. Staying down is not fine. Um, I, you know, I, I, I got introduced to someone who was starting a financial practice. And this was back in, in 1999. And I decided to be, um, to, to be, um, to be his wingman and to be the sweat equity guy. And he was the venture capitalist. And I learned how to do this, how to be an entrepreneur. Um, I was not an employee, but I was certainly not a partner. I, it right. was more along the lines of an associate. But I spent four years and I learned how to do it. And then when the opportunity arose, and it arose in a way that I didn't foresee, it was right. sort of a kick in the pants because um, the firm I was working with at the time merged with another firm and decided that they were only going to work with folks over a certain wealth level, which is not uncommon in our, in our industry. But all the folks I represented, for the most part, were under that wealth level. Right. And I said, you guys are going to do a great. This is going to be so good for you. It's not the right home for me. And they knew it. And instead of putting my tail between my legs and going, oh, no, woe is me, I said, well, why don't I just start my own shop? Give me a couple months. Let me, I'll buy out uh, my interest in our mutual clients over time. 
Um, if you run into folks who are suboptimal and want to send them to me, we'll create a business relationship. And I'm just going to do it. And that was my graduation. Yeah. And so leaving that business was not a divorce. Yeah. It was very much a graduation. And so one of the things that, that I've come to believe is that retirement is a graduation. It should not be a retreat. It should be the next phase of life. It's something you go toward. It's something you celebrate, but it's not the end of anything. It's the beginning of something new. And so I consider in 2003, when I launched this company, yes, it was entrepreneurial and I had two employees and I borrowed money from everywhere. And it was the most horrifying, but also exhilarating thing I've ever done in my professional life. But it was also a graduation. I didn't torch bridges. I didn't destroy relationships. I, this was done in such a way that everybody won. Um, and I've maintained friendships with my former firm to this day. Like there's no animosity. It doesn't have to be a divorce. Right. So yeah. I was sort of kicked in the pants. And instead of saying, oh, that's the worst thing that ever happened, I said, you know what? I've always wanted to do this anyway. Now's my chance. Yeah. And that was the moment. That was the trigger moment. That's that's awesome. Making lemonade. Making lemonade. <laughs> Making lemonade, yeah. <laughs> oh, that is awesome. Hard lemonade, I hope. Hard yes, lemonade. lemonade. Exactly. Yeah, with yeah. a little bit of a kick. With a little bit yeah. of a kick. All right. Well, we are at our fast five. So uh, we're going to... Change the energy real quick. I'm going to just ask you five questions and uh, don't think about it too much. Just have a little fun. Uh, I'm ready. All right. Uh, I'm, I'm, and I'm actually really curious about this first one. Uh, what's a good book that you would recommend on personal finance? <laughs> I guess I'm not allowed to, to name my own. Um, you could. There's a, book on, there's a book on behavioral finance written by Daniel Crosby. Mm-hmm. And behavioral finance, we talked earlier about the psychology piece. Yeah. Anything he's written is worth reading because it teaches us why we do the things we do with money. So Daniel Crosby, his great books. Great. Check that out. Uh, last impulse buy. Last impulse buy. Peloton. Um, <laughs> I needed a Peloton tread because it was better than the other tread. I needed it? Um, yeah. Well, that was I'm, in quotes. Yes, it was better than the other tread. I actually love it and I use it every day. So it's not, I don't put laundry on it. So that's good. That's good. Um, but yeah, that was an impulse buy. It's an expensive treadmill, but that's- I do love it. There you go. Um, yeah. Have you ever worked two or three jobs to make more money at the same uh, time? Yes. Yes. In fact, I, I'm, I'm running three companies now. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm busier now than I've ever been. But but yeah, there were times where I'd be working um, working and doing some side hustles. The only thing I never did was wait tables. Fast oh. food, yes, but ne- I never waited tables. Um, but yeah, it was if I needed extra money, a side hustle, whether it was marketing or consulting or other things, absolutely. <laughs> what is something that you hate spending money on? Like, ugh, it's painful. <laughs> it's funny. Um, the, the checks I write that I despise the most, uh, well, other than taxes, which yeah. is always the top of those. <laughs> taxes is always number nobody, one. Why does but nobody ever love to pay their taxes? Okay. <laughs> because it doesn't go to anything useful. Like the, the local ones, I don't mind. Fix the potholes, shovel the snow. Yeah. But the federal ones, what a waste. Forget right, it. Anyway, I digress. Um Things that I hope never to use, disability insurance, long-term care insurance, yeah. auto insurance, insurances that are not going to create anything good for me unless something bad happens to me. <laughs> I hate spending money, and I, I do it. I own them. That's the adult responsible thing to do, yep. but I, I despise them. Now, I t- you know, my first boss always told me it was always better to over-insure, and I do, but it's painful. <laughs> Oh, yeah. At some point, you know, when the moat around the castle is bigger than the castle itself, maybe you're doing it wrong. Um, but but no, I, I, writing those checks always bugs me. Yeah. But not having it would certainly be an issue. So, so I do it. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah. Are you where you want to be in life? 
Yes. I mean, I'm I'm doing exactly what I love to do, exactly where I love to do it, and I'm only working with people I enjoy. So I would say that's yes. I mean, I'm I'm doing everything I've everything I dreamt about and some things I never dreamt about. It's all here. Yeah. Um, you know, I will probably change my geographic sighting when I'm empty nested and it will involve sand between my toes. Nice. <laughs> but outside of that, uh, yeah, I'm right where I want to be. All right. And not the sand and cement kind of thing. More like, no. yeah, just, just, no, checking. I'm thinking, I'm thinking <laughs> seashells and, you know, I, 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 I love the beach more than anything and could, could, uh, live overlooking the Atlantic. Um, tomorrow, but yeah. for the fact that uh, m- my world is very much still here between fifth grade and aging parents and yeah. the business and everything else. But the day will come, especially now that we know we can work remotely. Yes. The day will come where I'll be overlooking the ocean while I'm holding meetings, and that's okay. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So now it's our sweet moment, our M&M sweet spot. Um, can you give uh, the listeners a practical piece, um, a practical tip or a wealth wisdom, um, something that you find that helps your clients? Yes. Take inventory. Start now and take inventory. You cannot possibly know how to get where you want to be unless you know where you are. And it's amazing how many people have no idea where they are. Yeah. Um, And so um, I think there is a, a very important step that gets overlooked, which is to put everything in one place, really take inventory, really understand where you are, and then figure out where you want to go instead of just haphazardly sprinting in, in whichever direction you think makes sense at the time. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I, you know, what I've really been hearing today um, that I just really want to reaffirm is that uh, like intentional living, um, whether it's taking inventory, um, whether it's looking to the future for, for your child's education or their future, um, the relationship with your wife around money, it all sounds very intentional. And I'm really hearing that piece, which I so agree with that. It's really about relationships. Like, uh, am, am, am I in relationship with this person? Not, am I in transactional, uh, relationship, um, that it's a much bigger piece because we are humans. Uh, and, um, like it just, I love what you've shared. I love that you're out there helping the people that aren't the wealthiest of the wealthy. Um, mm-hmm. but you're actually helping people where it probably actually makes more of a difference, um, having somebody guide them in their lives. So, uh, it's just nice to hear somebody that's feeling really, really good. Um, so I appreciate your sharing. Um, I want to know where people can find you online and social media. And you got to tell us about your newest book. Sure. Um, if you if you go to brotmanmedia.com, you will find our podcast, um, which is now in its third season. You will find the books, including some ebooks, which are free to download. Um, my shameless plug, the book is here. It's called Don't Retire, Graduate. And it really is designed to redefine retirement as something to move towards, not something to move away from or, or disappear from. Um, you can find that on Amazon or any place where you buy books. Uh, and if you're interested in checking out our financial planning company, bfgfa.com is where to find us. And, and you, you'll find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. If you Google us, you'll find us. Uh, and uh, I hope you'll reach out. I would love to talk to you. Absolutely. And we'll be sure to put all that in our social media as well. Let people find you and check out your book. Um, we'll make that available. Um, it's been so awesome talking to you and, and having this great conversation. Uh, 
I want to real quickly shamelessly plug to don't forget to share the love. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Search for Money You Should Ask, all one word. Uh, you can listen. To, you can listen. I can't talk, but you can listen and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast player or visit podchaser.com slash money you should ask. If you prefer to watch our episodes, head over to YouTube and subscribe to our YouTube channel. For more financial tools, virtual workshops, or to simply understand more about your money nerve, visit themoneynerve.com. Eric, I could talk to you for another couple hours. I really love what you're doing. I love what you're bringing and uh, keep bringing it. Bob, thanks. This has been a ton of fun. I knew it would be. Thank you.